Thanks for being here. Uh, we're excited that you're worshiping with us. Um, definitely, uh, if you see some men walking around that look kind of out of it, like zombie-like, it's probably because they were at Manmaker and stayed up way too late. Um, and so I was really encouraged by what God did at Manmaker and the ways that our men responded. Uh, it was a privilege to be able to speak at that event, actually to share sort of the same thing that I'm sharing with you guys. So some of the men are hearing this for the second time. We'll trust that the Lord just really wanted that to be the case, that they, he wanted them to hear it uh, two times. So fantastic weekend. We were just over at Dayspring, um, and I, I just, you know, standing up on the stage, again, humbled by the opportunity to teach, and looking out and seeing 350 young men, mostly college students, who were gathered for the purpose of learning more about what it means to be a man after God's own heart. We studied the life of David, and uh, God just did cool things. I saw a lot of prayer happening, a lot of guys just being broken and honest and also throwing dodgeballs at each other's faces. So, um, fun stuff. Um, I always start with a, with a big question. So here is my big question for the day. It's heavy. We're just going to dive right in because the passage is heavy. The question is, what do we do with our guilt and shame? What do we do with that? Um, I think of my, my son Mason. He's 10 now. When he was probably like I want to say five or six, he would do this thing where when he would make a mistake and, and sin, uh, we would, you know, talk to him about that. There would be a consequence of some sort, and then we would shower him with, you know, forgiveness and reminding him that God is for him and that God still loves him, and he would go off to his room, and then a couple of minutes later, he would emerge out of his bedroom with, like, a, a wad of cash that he had been saving up, and he would just, like, it was so pathetic to watch. He would just walk in with his head down and all this money he had collected from selling random drawings that he made that his parents buy over and over and over again. He'd just walk in and he would just like drop it on the kitchen table and turn and walk away. And we were like, what, what are you doing? And he was like, this is because I messed up. So here you go. Um, and I was like, to Tiffany, I'm like, babe, we, we're getting our money back. We've paid $25 for pencil scratches. Um, let's just take it. But of course, we couldn't. Um, but in his mind, that, that was how he had to deal with the guilt that he felt for what he did. Even now, where Naomi is four years old, and um, she makes a lot of mistakes. She's not here, is she? Okay. Um, she messes up a lot, um, and she's kind of in that season of life, and and so we do this thing where, you know, we'll correct her, we'll shower her with grace, and then, you know, we'll just check in every now and then, like not right when she's in the midst of that, but later. And we'll say, Naomi, do mommy and daddy love you when you make good choices? She'll say, yes. Then we'll say, do mommy and daddy love you when you make bad choices? And she'll go, no. And I'm like, oh my gosh. We literally are pummeling our children with the grace and the gospel over and over again. But there is this thing in her that she thinks that she has to earn it, that, that she doesn't deserve it, that we couldn't possibly love her when she messes up. And uh, I just think even in my kids, they're wrestling with what to do with the guilt and shame that they feel in our hearts. And I love the Psalms because the Psalms are like this 
you know, they're the prayers, they're the songs of the, some of the earliest followers of God. Many of them were written by David. This one that we're in today was written by David. But they help us to engage with our emotions because walking with Jesus is not always happy. And, and we wrestle with, with depression and, and sorrow and anger and discouragement and shame and guilt. And the Psalms are like, they teach us how to respond to that. And, and they also sort of justify that it's normal to feel that full range of emotion as a follower of God. And so today we're in the story of David and Bathsheba and David's response in Psalm 51. Uh, it's a story of tragedy, of evil, of manipulation. It's a story of redemption and healing. And it is saturated. It is soaked in guilt and shame. And, and so first, I have a confession. I really, really dislike this story. I really don't like it. I have been angry as I have lived in this passage the last couple of weeks. I've cried my way through it a few times, and God has met me in that place as he so faithfully does. And so this morning, I feel like I'm just giving out of what God's been doing in my life the last couple of weeks as I've lived in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and David's response in Psalm 51. I want to read a lot of scripture today, um, which I know can sometimes bore us to death, but to hang with me because I want you guys to just like see the story behind Psalm 51. We don't often know what like precipitated the writing of the psalm, but we know here in that little heading that we never read, that we always just skip right over, um, it tells us that Psalm 51 was written after this, like in the midst of this story of David and Bathsheba. So we're going to read a lot of Second uh, Samuel. FYI, the story is intense. It's like rated R. So if you have young kids, I'm going to pray. That might be a great time to, at your discernment, um, move them downstairs um, to the kids' room. We have some people down there, if you've never brought them down there, that would be glad to receive you. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in and read the story. God, we thank you that you give us the Psalms as a way to process our emotion, uh, the negative uh, emotions, the ones that we, we try so hard to avoid uh, and medicate and just um, struggle to deal with. God, I pray that we would, uh, as we read this story, that you would capture our hearts uh, with a, a portrait of who you are, and that we would learn from you. God, would your word speak to your people, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to read a big chunk of the story of David and Bathsheba. Again, this is what is behind Psalm 51. So, 2 Samuel 11, starting in verse 1, in the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. 
and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. It's so hard when we read these passages for us to remember. These are real people. This is a real story based in real history. People with real emotion. And so anyway, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. So what, what pause right here, what David is doing, right, is he's, he's trying to make it so that Uriah will leave the battlefield, he'll go back to be with his wife, so that maybe they will connect, so that maybe that, that, you know, he will think that the baby is his. He's trying to arrange it so that Uriah will go back to his house, so that he will sleep with Bathsheba, so that maybe the baby he will think is his. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants, and he did not go down to his house. So David's first plan of deception to cover his sin does not work. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Now, how ironic that the king, the one whom God chosen, the man after God's own heart, is the one deceiving and lying and manipulating and taking what is not his. And then it's Uriah, his soldier, who is utterly righteous. He will not leave his men. Verse 12, David's going to do something different. So David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem the day and the next at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. It's just one sin after another, one evil, manipulative attempt to cover his sin after another. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Option two, does not work. So David's just going to escalate it. He hands a letter to this man. And look at what the letter says. Uriah has no idea what he's holding. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. This part just wrecks me. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything that Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate, verse 24. 
Then archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's dead. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Look at David's response. This master plan of manipulation, this, this utter evil, the hands of the man after God's own heart. And David says, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. When, David, when, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him, which that would have lasted a long time. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the, the thing the Lord had done, or the thing that David had done, had displeased the Lord. If this line is not in here, this last line, what hope do we have? <laughs> what God do we serve? But it is. Praise God that that line is there. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I read this story, guys, and I've been in it for a couple of weeks, and the more I read it, the angrier I get. I want God to just strike David dead. He assaults Bathsheba. He lies to get her husband to sleep with her. He won't do it, right? So then he tries to get him drunk. That doesn't work. So then he arranges for him to be killed. And other men die too. And then he takes her as his own. And the story is just written like so matter of fact. It's so unembellished, so pedestrian, just this is what it is. It just reads like this is normal. This is what happens. This is what kings do. What they want, they get. But what is happening here, don't miss this, is pure evil. David is driven by a primal desire for sex. He's taking what is not his. He's not leading his troop as, he's, as he should have been doing in that moment, right? That's how the passage started. He should have been with his troops, but he was not. He's deceiving, scheming, manipulating, murdering to protect his own image. It is a blatant act of selfishness without regard for God or humanity. It is a grotesque abuse of power. It is the robbery of a woman's dignity. It is an insult to the image of God in which his victims were made. I hate this story. And all he has to say is don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. It's sickening. He is completely unmoved by his sin. This is heinous. I read this and I think, God, where are you? Where are you? We know that, that God is displeased because of that line, right? We know that he is displeased. And we also know that God is never far off. He is in the, mixed, the, the midst of the mess all the time. So check out what God does. He sends a prophet. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to, to David. When he came to him, he said, he's going to tell him a story, a parable. He says, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So the rich guy, bunch of cattle, bunch of lambs, the poor guy won. 
and he's raised it as his own. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. So he killed that one to eat. Listen to this. David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And here it comes. Oh, how we need someone like this in our life. Look at what Nathan says. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the guy in the story who took what was not yours to take. You are this guy. You are burning with anger, David, at this story, and you don't even recognize that you have leveled that same kind of offense against Uriah and Bathsheba and the other men that fell beside Uriah. David, don't you see what you have done? You are the man in this story. And so he gets David to condemn himself. The Bible tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you have someone in your life who is willing to rattle your cage? Willing to look you in the eyes and say, you are wrong in this. I see the way that you talk to your wife. I see the way that you interact with your kids. I, see the st- I hear the stories you tell about the way you are at work, whatever it may be, and I want to call you out. I'm not sure that's honoring to God. It's for our good. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Look at what happens in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Finally, he gets it. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. David repents. He acknowledges his sin and and God forgives him. And I read that in light of how I felt as I've been, you know, like, the, the evil, the atrocity, the, the heinous things that David did. And all Nathan says is, God has forgiven you. He's, he's passed over it. And I read that and I get more angry because I'm like, it shouldn't be that easy. How can it be that easy? A woman who's been raped, a dead husband, dead soldiers, a baby who will die. Just think about the emotional wreckage that David has caused. No righteous judge would look at that situation and say, I forgive you. I pass over that. You are acquitted of your wrongdoing. How could God do that? And this is where, this is where the Lord met me this week. I was sitting up there in my office, angry, sad, mad at this story, and the Lord visited me, and he said, my anger Your anger reveals how little you think I am, how small you make me out to be. Yeah, there's some righteous anger in me, and I think there should be some righteous anger in all of us as we read this story, but there's something else that was happening inside of me. It's that I 
could not believe that God would want to forgive David. Now, I'm a pastor. I have good theology, so it's not like, you know, I I think that God can't do it. Of course, God has the power to do whatever he wants to do. Of course, God can forgive David, but where God met me and where he humbled me and I fell on my face was this recognition that I believe that God wouldn't want to. And here it is, the line that just wrecked me again. felt like God was saying to me, it is my grace that angers you. See, there's something more outrageous than the actions of David in this story, something way more outrageous and scandalous, and it's the grace of God. More scandalous than what David did is the kindness that God showed him. See, we are glimpsing in this moment the gospel. We know way more than David did, right, because of where we sit in human history. We know how God would do this, how God could look at a guy like David and be both just and good. How God could forgive and still be just because Jesus Christ would come a thousand years later and bear upon himself the iniquity and the sin of the entire world and he would crucify the sins of David, the sins of every other person, of you and me on that cross. We know that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, you and me and all who have come before and will come after, he made him, God made Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel should shock us with its goodness. We should be astounded at how good God is to us. There is no sin exposed or hidden that has not been crucified with Jesus for those who call him king. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of the Father because of the finished work of Jesus. I was reading Psalm uh, 103 this morning, and that's where it talks about he does not count our sins against us as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. We can't out the mercy of God. You just can't do it. And David knew this extravagant grace of God. And he trusted God for his life. At that moment of his confession, he ran to him. He fell on his face before God. And he eventually penned Psalm 51. And 18 minutes into this talk, now I'm going to talk about Psalm 51. Here we go. Psalm 51 is a collision of the horror of our sin and the magnificence of God. This is one of the Psalms that, you know, we, we can't, it's hard to just read it. Like it just... It reads us, it draws us in. It's like we can feel the things that David felt as he wrote it. It's a raw, honest, desperate, passionate plea for God to to work on his behalf. And so let's read Psalm 51. Here's what it says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, 
sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. I want to pray like that. (laughs) I so desperately want to pray like that. I just want to point out two things David knows and three things that he wants, and i got to fly through this. So two things that he knows and three things that he wants. Because I think what David is doing is here is he's modeling for us how to respond in our guilt and our shame. What do we do with that stuff? How do, we, how do we bring God into that? The first thing he knows is that God is kind. First verse of this psalm, three times over, the mercy of God, the mercy of God, the mercy of God, the love of God. He is staking his life on the kindness of God. Found this quote from a dead guy. Dead guys are always smarter than living guys. So in 1912, this dead guy named James Russell Miller said this. Notice David's thoughts of God as we find them in this confession in Psalm 51. He saw him as a God of unfailing love. In all the poignant sense of the guilt that pressed upon his soul, there was not a shadow of despair. The moment he saw his sin, there poured upon him also a glorious disclosure of God's love. Yes, he was full of guilt. Yes, there was shame. But there was not despair. Because at the same time that he came clean and he acknowledged all that he had done that was wrong, at that same moment, what overcame him was the love and the mercy of God. And that's what happens to us too. We're not going to know. We're not going to experience and encounter and actually you know, get into us, inside of us, this amazing, scandalous, radical love of God if we're not honest about our need for him in the sinfulness of our hearts. Do you know that God is this kind, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve? So he knows God is kind. The second thing that he knows is that his sin is heinous. He says, my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned, which I read that line and I'm like, no, you, no, no, that's not right. Against you and you alone have I sinned? Let's count the people that he sinned against, right? A ton of people. And yet he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I think what David knows is that ultimately what makes sin sin is that it's against God. And that yes, there was wreckage and yes, he, but he sinned. The horror of what he did was that it was so contrary to the character of the God who made him. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, 
He uses all three Hebrew words to talk about bad things that we do, sin, transgression, iniquity. Basically, he's covering all of his bases, and he's saying, I am wretched. Look at what he doesn't do. He makes no attempt to minimize, no attempt to justify, no attempt to explain it away. Right? He just owns it. All sin is vertical. I guess the question here is like, are you soft on sin? Do you just want to brush it under the rug or explaining it away? Have you gotten really, really, really good at explaining away your sin? So, he knows God is kind. He knows his sin is heinous. Now what he wants in this psalm, he wants to be washed clean. Cleanse me with hyssop. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop was this branch and priests would dip it in blood and if there was a house that had become diseased or had some sort of uncleanness in it, they would go in, they would sprinkle, they would wave it around, they would do some sort of ceremony and they would declare, this place is now clean. You can go into this place and not be made impure. You can go into this place and David is saying, I need you to do that to me, God. Cleanse me. Make me clean. There is no human priest that can do what needs done inside of me. Only you can do it. Again, notice what he does not do. He doesn't run to his reputation. He doesn't break out the list of, God, here are all the things I've done for you. I serve on this thing. I went on this mission trip. I give some money here. I do this. He, he doesn't make a vow to do more for God. All right, God, so I messed up here. Great, I'm so sorry, but here's what I'm gonna do. Now I'm gonna do something really amazing for you, really sacrificial for you. He doesn't promise that he'll never do it again. He doesn't make some empty promise. God, I'll never do this. This is it, this is the last time. He just asks to be cleansed, to be forgiven. Second thing he wants is to be made new. This is huge. He wants more than forgiveness. He says, create in me a new heart. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. He's declaring that the central issue in his life, the central problem that led him to do what he did was that he had lost his joy in God. It's fascinating, and it's so true. All of our sin ultimately is a forgetfulness of the joy that it is to know God and to walk with him. We choose to forget. We choose to turn that off. We stop believing that what God wants for us is goodness and beauty and richness of life, and we choose to find our joy elsewhere, and we sin. Notice that in this psalm, there is no mention of sex, murder, or deception. He doesn't talk about those things, right? Because ultimately what he is declaring is that his issue is his heart. And that he's lost his hope and his joy in God. And the problem is in our hearts too. Have we lost 
the joy. I'm not talking about like pining for the past. I'm not talking about, I remember when I gave my life to Jesus at a youth rally when I was 12. I, that's amazing. I love that that's what happened in your life if that's what happened. I'm not talking about a pining for the past. I'm talking about day after day we choose to believe that what God wants for us and what we have seen him do over and over again is bring us life, an abundant life and that joy not just happiness, not just circumstantial joy, but like true, lasting joy is found in knowing and walking with him. How are we doing with joy? It's so connected to our character and our lives and our sin. The last thing he wants is to worship. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. He wants the world to see this glorious grace of God. And I think, this is what I said to the men on Friday night, and I'll say it to you guys. I I think that that we we have this idea that the way that we're used by God is when we're triumphant. When we've cleaned everything up, when we're in full victory, and we struggle with nothing. And that's when God will use it. If I can just, let me just fix this. If I clean up this area of my life, if I go and get fully sanctified, and I don't struggle anymore, then, wow, what will God be able to do with me? But David gets it. I mean, the guy is like literally broken. He has just done something terrible. And he's declaring, God, I want to tell everyone how amazing your grace is. It's his weakness, it's his inability that will draw others to God. What if the way that God wants to use you It's not in your triumph, but it's by showcasing his exceeding mercy in your life. This is so biblical. It is not about our triumph. It is not about what we've done. It's about Jesus. It's about us being broken and then completely dependent upon him. In our weakness, he is strong. So I come back. What do we do with our guilt? Do we hide it? Do we ignore it? Do we medicate it with more unhealthy things? Do we try to make a vow to do more stuff for God? All of it, all of that stuff is a slavery. I pray that we don't do that. There's no life in it. There is another way. There is a path to freedom and healing. Verses 15 and 17 of Psalm 51. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. There is another way. It's just by confessing. It's by speaking it out. It's by declaring it to God and to people in your life. It's by saying it and naming it and taking it out of the darkness, out of the shadows, and bringing it into the light. And when we do that, we experience the healing grace of God. If we don't do that, if we will not do that, then we will not experience the grace of God. He just wants your broken hearts. Paul Tripp, one of my favorite living, this guy's alive, um, pastors, theologians, teachers, says, it is a grace to feel the pain of conviction. It is a wonderful thing to be haunted by the convicting mercies of the Holy Spirit. In order to reclaim your heart, God will break your bones. 
That's such a gut punch. <laughs> when he says, God will break your bones, he's actually referring to Psalm 51. That language is in there. David uses those words. Why? Because stepping out and confessing and owning and naming the sin and the iniquity in our hearts, it feels like your bones are breaking. I've done it. I've done it in glorious fashion. I try to do it every day of my life. I sin against my wife. I sin against my kids. I try to confess, and it is hard. It is so hard. It feels like my bones are breaking. But God does it to reclaim our hearts. It's for our good. It's for our redemption. And so what we want to do as I close in prayer is I just want to invite you. We're going to have some staff standing in the back and along the sides over here. There's something you just need to get off your chest, something that, that, that maybe you've never given voice to before, that you're struggling with and you, you want to experience the healing grace of God. Um, challenge you to just step, take that step of faith and pray with one of our staff. Or maybe there's a conversation you need to have with your spouse or your roommate or your friend following this. I just want to encourage you to, to do it. Don't wait. Don't continue to keep things in the dark. May we offer our broken hearts as our worship. Not our triumph, not our God, we're gonna do more, not our God, look at what I've done, but just our brokenness. Would that be our worship? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Psalm 51. I pray that we would live Psalm 51. I pray that we would breathe Psalm 51, that it would just flow out of us. Lord, would you give us boldness, the boldness to be honest. Lord, would you remind us, overwhelm us with your grace. We are so thankful. We are so completely undeserving of the fact that you do not treat us as our sins would suggest. You have good things for us, God. Lord, would we experience that grace? Would you heal us? as we step into the light. In Jesus' name, amen.